welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher. With me today is Neil Rushton. I'll let him introduce himself. Thank you, Barbara. It's really good to be here with you today. Thank you for asking me to come on Six Degrees of John Keel. Um, it's, it's, it's a great honor, and hopefully we can get into the issues surrounding the fairies and everything they may or may not be. That would be really great. So, yeah, I am uh, Dr. Neil Rushton, and I live in the UK. I live near Liverpool in the, in the UK, and I've been looking into the phenomenon of the fairies in all of their guises and folkloric guises and modern guises for, well, many years, actually, sort of 20 20 plus years, 30 plus years, really, since I started getting interested in it. But I only started writing about it in 2016 when um, I had had an extremely bad period in my life when I lost a lot of eyesight in late 2015. And that's going to be very relevant. We'll come on, hopefully, to talk about something called Charles Bonnet syndrome uh, later uh, later on, if, if, if we have time. But that was a, a kind of juncture in my life where I had to change jobs and I you know, had a bit of a financial meltdown and I had to come to certain realisations about what I could and couldn't do anymore. But one of the things I, I did start doing was start a blog site called Dead But Dreaming, um, about, which is writing about the fairies from all their perspectives, from the folkloric perspective, from the modern perspective. And I was soon writing about how altered states of consciousness have a fundamental role in fairy experiences. And I know, I know we're going to get on onto that. But my, my background is actually in archaeology. So I did archaeological degrees at the University of Southampton in um, uh, my BA and my MA between... Ooh, well, the years start to meld into one, one another, don't they? Between, between 95 and 99. And then I went to the University of Cambridge to do a PhD. And the PhD was a sort of mixture of archaeology and history. And, it, and the, 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 the thesis is nothing we're going to be talking about today. The, the, <laughs> the, the thesis is about uh, the outer precincts of English monasteries in the later Middle Ages. So, so that's the sort of background. I always worked as an archaeologist as well. I've worked as an archaeologist since 93 through my university degrees and, and afterwards. And that kept, that, that's what I did for a living until 2015. Um, and uh, so, so that's just a brief, a brief resume of, of how I've come to this point now where I write and talk uh, about the fairy phenomenon. Excellent. And, and your, your, uh, your thesis might not be about fairies, but it still sounds interesting to me. Well, well, it's yeah. uh, it's um, it's it's hardcore materialistic mm-hmm. thesis. It's all about data, yeah. and um, you know, I, I spent well the best part of two years during that PhD just transcribing medieval account rolls. Now. A lot of people think that sounds a little bit dull, actually. <laughs> and and to, be, to be honest, sometimes it could be a little bit dull. But um, I did enjoy that thesis. And uh, again, I'm not going to waste too much time t- talking about it because it's not on our subject matter. But it's um, I learned um, the thing I learned most from doing the PhD 
was how to source data and material and to interpret it. And I think that's a sort of transferable skill. Once you go yes. go to the original sources, you can then um, uh, transfer that to any other discipline. And I think I have, to a certain extent, to uh, as, as a folklorist. I never call myself a folklorist because people get very upset about that. You know, oh, you haven't got a degree in folklore, and, and which, which which is true. But um, <laughs> I, so I, I, if if someone wanted to be rude, they might call me a pseudo folklorist. <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah okay yeah lots of, <coughs> sorry lots of people mm. have to have to give their opinions on things that they, they do don't need to give their they opinions do they on. do they do <laughs> so i found you i found your blog i want to say probably a year maybe six months after you started it yeah and i don't remember why I found it. Probably I was looking up fairy lore and I had a search query that that sent me to you and so I I've been reading it for a long time. That well that's great. I'm really pleased to to, to hear that. It might you, you might well it might have been a search or it might, I I am I'm quite good at disseminating the articles on Facebook groups. Yeah, and that, uh, that could also have been it. So that, that might be where you found it. Yeah, 2016 was a very dark time in the United States, and <laughs> so yeah, I don't yeah, remember yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. quite how everything that I found, I found it, but well, it's well, good that I found it. Uh, yes, very much so. I'm, I'm glad you did as well. Yeah, 2016, I, well, 2016 was my year of meltdown after the eyesight problems and so usually i've always kept very up to date with politics and culture and and what's going on in the world you didn't need to for 20 20 well i'm glad i'm glad i missed out on it actually yeah yeah your 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 personal thing you didn't need extra let's just put it that way you didn't need you know the extra thinking about terrible apocalyptic ideas agreed so when I think about fairies, I, you know, most people in the United States, we have the diminutive, you know, little fairies in our heads um, with wings. I, I'm one of the odd ones who knew early on that they weren't all, you know, little fairies with wings and they're not supposed to be at all. And that came about in the 19th century. And that's because I started reading old fairy lore fairly young. Um, I actually got allowed into the adult section of the public library in my city uh, really early on because I basically read all the nonfiction in the kids section and I was, I was tired of checking out the same books. And so the librarian asked my mom if it was okay. And my mom was like, yeah, she can read anything. It's all right. So I basically sat myself down in the folklore section and just, you know, went through it. And uh, I really enjoyed, and my very favorite, even from that time period, true fairy story is the Wallington Gnomes. (laughs) I loved the idea of these kids sneaking under a fence or over a fence, I think it was under, and going into this forbidden area at dusk and then 
they see little gnome guys in primary color outfits in little cars. Even as like, you know, a 13, 14 year old, I was like, oh my God, that is so cool. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I read it out loud to my dad and he goes, that can't, they couldn't have really seen that, that no. And I was like, why not? You know, why? I mean, to me, the weirder and more high strangeness something is, the more likely I am to nod my head and go, yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. That sounds like it to me. So well, go ahead. So, so, yeah. Well, if you want me to talk about the Wallace and Gnomes, I will yes, certainly talk, talk, talk about talk, the talk, Wallace talk. and Gnomes. So, uh, so for those, there's a lot to say about this. And I am as we speak, well, not as we speak, but, you know, an ongoing project is the Wallet and Gnomes project, which I'm doing along with Kate Ray. Uh, I do a podcast with Kate Ray. We'll maybe talk about that nearer the end. Um, and Joe Hickey-Hall, who's a folklorist. And we are putting, there's some very exciting things about to happen in the Wallerton Gnomes project, which I won't be able to divulge today. Kate would kill me because it's a big secret. At oh, the moment. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so this is, this is not something that happened. It stopped happening. It isn't interesting. This is an ongoing research pro project, which I am part of the team doing it. So, so keep your ears out for that. But for people who don't know, the Wallace and Gnome story, or just briefly, just briefly go through what happened. Um, there were a group of children. I, th I think it was six, or was it seven children? I can never remember these these, these specific details. In September 1979, and as you say, they actually climbed over a wall at Wallerton Park, which is a large parkland outside Nottingham in England, in the in sort of East Midlands of uh, of England. And it's uh, a park. It, it, it was it was a deer park, basically an aristocratic land holding from mm -hmm. the late Middle Ages, and then it developed through the eighteenth and nineteenth century, and then and now it's being made into a public park. But the big, am I going to get this wrong? Seventeenth century house. I think it's seventeenth century. Uh, I think that's what it said in in the. Wallington yeah. Gnomes book. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that the architectural style is definitely 17th century. It's a big house and, you know, it's still open to the public and you can go in there, but there's big, extensive parklands. And so in September 1979, this group of children climbed over the wall because it would have been locked up before dusk and the public weren't allowed in, so they were being naughty by climbing over the wall. And they soon found themselves in a marshy area of the park. And, uh, you know, I've been to the park and I've seen this marshy area and there's something special about it. There is definitely something going on there. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that when we start talking about altered state of consciousness. Um, but so, so the group of children climb into the park, they're being a bit naughty. And then uh, bear in mind, this is about dusk. So it's getting dark. They're in this marshy area where they're not supposed to be. And suddenly, a few dozen gnomes appear. But not only do the gnomes appear, the gnomes appear in tiny cars. 
and they start driving around the marsh, but, you know, apparently levitating above logs and, and tiny mounds. They, you know, almost flying, but not more levitating. And they interact with the children. No words are spoken, but there's an interaction and everything seems very humorous. It's all a bit of a giggle. And the, uh, and the kids have this experience, which goes on for 10, 15 minutes until a couple of the children fall into the marsh and they get covered mm. in mud and they start to get scared. They suddenly become scared. The gnomes are still there. They're still driving around in the little cars. And uh, so the children run off. And, th- and that's the end of the experience. The gnomes don't follow them outside of the park. Over the wall they g- go again, get in trouble for being muddy uh, and whatnot. But the, the really interesting part of this story is the next day they went to school and immediately started talking about this weird experience that they'd had. And the headmaster uh, gets wind of this and in true 1970s disciplinarian style, separates them, <laughs> puts them into separate rooms and takes a transcript of their description of what happened which is, uh, you know, quite quite a harsh thing to do, but I'm glad he did do that because mm-hmm. it means that we have these separate transcripts of the children explaining what they're, what they're doing, and the, the match between those transcripts is incredible. They all seem to be saying the same thing. Now, that, that these are, I should have said, these, these children are 8, 9, and 10. Now, if they had been just making this up, they would have, at least one of them, at some point would have broke down during mm-hmm. during those interrogations by the headmaster. And they would have said, we're making it up, and the whole thing would have fallen apart. But all of them insisted that it happened, and they told almost, with very small variations, the same story to the headmaster in se- separate transcripts. And we have those transcripts still. We still have the recording of of it as well. It was recorded on a handheld recorder, in 1979 and most recently the the folklorist dr simon young who we both know very well um collected the transcripts put them together into a book called the wallatum gnomes nottingham uh what's it called a nottingham fairy mystery and along with those transcripts uh, several people all put um, some input into it in terms of short articles talking around the subject of the of, of the wallet and gnomes so that's the, that's basically what happened and if the headmaster hadn't taken those uh testimonies after the event we would probably never have heard of it, it yeah it's purely because of what he did that that, that we that we know about the story now there, there there's you know we could we could talk about this for the next hour and a half but it's pro- probably best not to but it's um <laughs> the the, uh, the 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 story has so many components so, so for a start the gnomes were described and drawn by the children the children also drew drew what was happening and they look like traditional folkloric gnomes the mm-hmm. archetypal gray beard little hats sort of, sort of weird archaic clothing um, but of course, they were in cars, and I think the children 
well, this is very difficult to describe. I think the children were experiencing uh, non-human intelligent entities, mm-hmm. and but they were f- getting filtered through contemporary cultural memes. And at that time in the 1970s, I don't know whether this made it to America, but there was a cartoon called Noddy and Big Ears. And Noddy and Big Ears were a bit gnome-like. It's difficult to describe in audio, but they're kind of little gnomes. Noddy's a bit younger and Big Ears is older, like a great grey beard gnome. And they drive around in a little car, Mm -hmm. which is very similar to those drawn and described by the children. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, they were making it up and they were just thinking of Noddy. They were experiencing something real and visceral at that time. And there has been some kind of perceptual translation for these children so that they could make sense of it with uh, a contemporary cultural uh, in this case cartoon so that that's that's one aspect of of why it's so interesting i, I don't know whether you want to come back at me on anything there Barbara. oh it, that's my favorite part too um that they that they see them in cars and they are driving these cars around in a very sort of uh sort of funhouse kind of way you know that they're, they're definitely enjoying themselves and the cars like you say don't quite fly but they do go over obstacles by levitation so yeah and it what's interesting to me is the concept of co-creation where you know whatever is in your head interacts with whatever the non-human intelligence is and there is a blending of of concepts and that's how they appear to the human yeah. is there's a little bit of the human interface in there that they can understand because you know we're not supposed to have non-human intelligences running around in ordinary reality it just isn't supposed to happen it's not done uh, it's yeah. bad yeah um but I, I just love that they saw them in cars. You know, there are other little people experiences where they're seen in flying balls of light or typical flying saucers, but they're small. Um, and yeah, that's interesting to me, but cars, for whatever reason, when I was a kid, I latched onto that. And no, as far as I know, Naughty and Big Ears never made it to the States. Right. <laughs> but something about that incongruous thing just made me love that so much. Yes, it's um, the, the it, yeah, the, the, there's like I say, there's so much about this story, and um, as I inferred when we started talking about it, we part of the project with Kate and Joe uh, involved us going to Wollaton Park in May, early May. Of, of this year and we did a, t- a complete tour because it's it's not very it's not absolutely clear where the children had this experience we mm-hmm. know it's a marshy bit of ground um but there are several like that in in Wollaston Park we're not quite sure where they came over the wall or how far they came into the park afterwards but we we did 
not not a proper survey, but you know, just a day's surveying of the of the whole park to see to try and pin down where this space would be, and we think we found it, and it's in the area of what used to be what what is called a duck decoy. I don't know whether you know what a duck decoy is. It's it's not very pleasant actually because it's it's something uh, you know eighteenth century Aristos would build a uh, a lake a small oh, okay. lake a f- with ridges fake, around it yeah a fake yeah. lake with which funneled water into areas so they basically lured the ducks into this right. this lake and then drew them into the uh, into the into the funnel and then I'm afraid they shot them and ate them so <laughs> but that's it's long long since uh, as it passed since that was uh, a duck decoy it's now just kind of an overgrown marshy area with these weird embankments that they built probably in the 18th century but when we went the day we went it was it was, it was quite a pleasant day there, there was sun shining through the branches there was a kind of magical feel about it you could sense it even if we hadn't identified on the map and topographically where this was, we all kind of knew it. And uh, Kate and Joe are, are definitely have more psychic sensibilities than I do. I usually say I'm as psychic as a plank of wood. But on this day, there was, there was just a few moments where we're thinking something is about to happen here. It, it didn't. It it's one of those threshold things where mm-hmm. you go into a situation that something's about to happen, something's about to happen and it didn't, but you think next time I think it will. And so we saw that, yeah, this is, this, this, this is a very potentially magical area, especially at dusk. Um, it was also at the equinox um, uh, in September, special time of year, Special mm-hmm. time of day, threshold, liminality. What else would you see but Noddy, Noddy and Biggie's um, uh, fairies? <laughs> well, in the did did you all do any um, uh, electromagnetic readings in the area? No, that's that's Kate's bag because she does. Um, well, she does ghost hunting. And they, right. they use all the kit. I'm absolutely useless with that. And so I, I just turn up and um, you know see what see what's happening. But so so next time we go, we're planning a second visit as part of this project, and she's going to bring uh, along a bit bit some of this kit to see if we can pick up anything on that. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll 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 see what happens. So yeah, so yeah, Wollaton the Wollaton gnome story. It's absolutely fascinating, and the, actually the other. The other fascinating thing about this is that there are several other anecdotal stories from this park. Is obviously something's happening there, and these date from as far back as 1900, and then there's one in the 1950s, and then there's actually one story happened just before the Wallaton, the 1979 incident. I think it happened either in the same year or the year before, and again there were two children, and they saw. The, the gnomes uh, without cars on the mm-hmm. other side of a, of a water ditch. And this is, this is again, a very, very interesting um, uh, example of, a, of these types of anecdotes where both these children were like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Yes, I'm seeing that. And then they go home, and these are slightly older children, 12, 13, then they went home 
and told their parents about it and it eventually got recorded. I think that one got recorded in Marjorie Johnson's Seeing Fairies book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so, uh, so there are like, I think there are about a dozen other sightings, encounters with gnome-like beings, what we would typically think of as folkloric gnome beings, in that very small area of of Wollaton Park, um, uh, and that suggests to me that there is some kind of resonance that human consciousness is picking up on in in that space. And if we're if we're lucky enough for the people to give the testimony and for it to be recorded and published in some form, then we have that that data. Go back to all you know. Check the data. Check the data. Is it there? What does it mean? Can we interpret it? How 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 rigorous is uh, uh, can we apply these techniques to 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 those testimonies? And of course, just because we've I'm sorry, well, that's half a dozen testimonies in that one place. But when it comes to talking about fairies, people are very reluctant to do it. Sometimes you oh I've, you mm-hmm. you've seen a fairy. Well, I'm not going to tell anyone about that because fairies are still very much a taboo subject. And mm-hmm. as you insinuated at the at the beginning, you will say to most people, I would say 80% of people, if you said fairies, they would think of Tinkerbell. They would think of mm-hmm. D- Disney fairies. And obviously this is not what we're talking about. It We're talking about something much deeper and, uh, uh, and antique than, than that. Yeah. Um, have any of the reports involved small lights in the woods yes. or near the marsh? Uh, yes. Well, um, now I do need to get her name right because I'm terrible with names. But Maeve Calvert, um, Maeve Calvert has written on my my blog site, were the gnomes of Wollaton Park intelligent life forms? So um, she, t- she she talks about the light that is emanating, that is described, that the children in 1979, they described the light emanating from, um, uh, fr- from the gnomes, whereas Maeve, is suggesting it's only it's only a suggestion inter- possible interpretation that what the actual beings were is uh light energy what however you want to interpret that, that light energy and uh, that light energy gets uh, or was um uh conducted into the form of gnomes in cars for the children if someone else had been there, maybe an adult had been there at exactly that same time, maybe all they, they would have seen is floating lights or orbs or, 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 or mm-hmm. such like. So, so yeah, uh, although the other descriptions at Walton, I don't think any of them actually describe that. It's only this 1979, you know, the well-known example where they're talking about a light emanating from the gnomes and, and the cars. And remember, this was at dusk. So, mm-hmm. and they said they could see the cars absolutely as clear as day, but only because they were emanating their own light. Right. Yeah. Well, I actually knew the answer to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm doing uh, research on anomalous light phenomena. Mm. And yes, the, the, the big ones in the sky, but I'm more interested in the smaller ones 
And it seems to me that just about every paranormal phenomena has little lights. You know, I mean, and when I say little, I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be little tiny. Um, you know, it can be, you know, beach ball sized, whatever. Um, and I tend to be of the opinion that that is the native form of whatever it is yes. that humans are interacting with. And it shape changes itself and our minds shape shift it as well so that we can, you know, deal with it. Um, so I, I really loved that, that essay in the, the Wallington Gnomes book and also on your website. I got so excited. So it's going to go in the book. <laughs> um, I, I already have that written down. Yeah. Um, so I was, but I was really excited to see that because not many people have articulated it that way that, oh, well, maybe they're just light, although I think just light is a terrible way to express it. Mm. You know, light that can communicate with us, that's not just light. <laughs> that's something incredible. I, th I think it's um, the best way to see it is that it is a, a non-human intelligent entity that happens to use light. Mm-hmm. That's you know whatever they are, and you know we can go on to this. Are they are they fairies? Are they aliens? Are they cryptids? Are they you know any any other any non any other form of non-human intelligent entity that is non-physical, as far as we know, will be potentially using light as its communication mm -hmm. source with us, and um, and depending on the individual human consciousness. It depends how we then perceive what we are actually seeing, but we're only yeah. able to see it because there is light involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, one of the things I, I love when you're saying, well, is it a fairy? Is it an alien? Is it a cryptid? I'm like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's all and none. Well, you know, as this is the, I, as this is the six degrees of John Keel, it's not surprising that you're you're saying that because uh, yeah, because obviously John Keel is one of the per first people, um, along with uh, Jacques Vallée, who in the sixties and through the seventies to till now, Jacques Vallée uh, are very much of the opinion that the fairies of folklore are the same as the UFO occupants of mm -hmm. the 20th and 21st century and you know we we, we can't go into detail of, of what, how much they've written about this but th this was actually one of the first things that really piqued my interest in the fairy phenomenon because I'd, i i you know i've been reading about fairy folk basically from a very straight folkloric perspective mm -hmm. reading reading the folklore i found it very interesting and then I came across Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia, which was written uh, in 68 or 69, one of those. But you know, I didn't read it until, what, mid-90s, late-90s. And I read it, and it was like the pieces falling into place. You know when you read something, even if it's quite a radical interpretation or philosophy, you know they've got it they've nailed it mm -hmm. and from then on 
I've always been of the opinion, which is not always a popular opinion, especially amongst folklorists, that all of these non-human intelligent entities, whatever you want to call them, they're all the same. The fairies are the same as the aliens. The, in some ways, the aliens are sort of an updated version of, of the fairies. Mm-hmm. They, they abduct people. They take them to strange places. They are ambivalent in their morals. So many, so many, so many, so many similarities. And again, we come back to how the individual human consciousness is perceiving what's going on. Um, and then they will label it as they are, you know, whatever cultural perspective they are, they are taking. So, and, and that's why in the age of rockets and sci-fi in the 20th and 21st century, we prefer to say, oh, well, they're extraterrestrials, obviously. Well, why, why, why are they extraterrestrials? Well, the, the fairies were never seen as extraterrestrials. Um, maybe intra terrestrials mm-hmm. but um uh, the, uh so so that is that culture has a lot to do with this and mm-hmm. and how we are, how the human consciousness observes these beings however you want to describe them but i'm you know i've really come round to the fact and this is something that you know obviously you know very well joshua cutchin's new book the ecology of souls where he's talking about this very thing and mm-hmm putting it into beautiful perspective. I love the way Joshua writes, and I think we, we were separated at birth because we think in exactly the same way about these things, but he's a very good writer, and I love what he's saying about the connection between the UFO phenomenon, the fairy folklore, and all of these um, you know, other things like cryptids or, or whatever. And, yeah, they're the, they're the same thing. They're coming from the, At least they're coming from the same place, and I believe that that place is some form of collective consciousness of humanity. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's the best best answer. <laughs> I think that's that's the you know it, it's multiple choice, and you know if you don't know which one is the exact answer, you always go for the one that you think is the best answer. Yeah, and I think that's the the best answer, and it it makes sense. Now, what I do wonder is, did the phenomena itself want us to believe it was from space? Or did we just do that all on our own in the night? Because there's, there's these stories from the 1940, late 1940s and 1950s that sound like fairy stories, except the little dudes, you know, made sure to have helmets on and jump into a rocket after they, you know, stole stockings from a nice Italian lady, you know. Whereas stealing stockings from a woman or stealing her flowers or scaring her and then running off or turning into a burst of light or whatever is much more of a fairy-like kind of thing. It's like, why would, you know, these little guys come from space to steal stockings off the... the, (laughs) I mean, that's weird. That's like way weird, you know. It it, it is. And and those sort of mid-20th century stories, it's almost as though... The, the older fairy folklore is at that time turning into a more mm-hmm. modern sci-fi sort of story. Yeah. And there's this inter-period where they, they do things like, you know, steal someone's stockings. Or there's quite a few stories about them coming down a spaceship and they've got little biscuits 
you know, yeah. little, little little sweet biscuits, which that's very fairy folklore. Oh yeah. But the fairies yeah. didn't come down in a spaceship. All, right. All, but so, so I think it's probably your original question. You know, did, did are we creating it or are they doing it? Uh, it's probably a bit of both. And mm-hmm. if we go back to that idea of a collective human consciousness, uh, you know, I know obviously Carl Jung called it the the collective unconscious. Doesn't matter. It's a it's a interchangeable term. That collective consciousness, if that's right, if that's where they're coming from, then they are going to perhaps change their approach at mm-hmm. uh, at different times. At the same time as culturally, we are changing our perspective of what's going mm-hmm. on. But having said that, I mean it's not as though you know in the twentieth century. Fairy sighting stopped and UFO st- st- sighting started. It's yeah. The, the fa- fairy sightings continue to this to this day, uh, myself included, my own encounters yeah. included. Me too. And, Me too. Uh, well, we're we're, exactly. we're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> so we 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 know that um, it doesn't necessarily have to manifest as a sci-fi UFO phenomenon. It can be yeah. very much like. The, the stories from 1900 or 1800 or even older, mm-hmm. um, and th- this is this is best exemplified in the the Fairy Investigation Society's census, which again is the responsibility of Dr. Simon Young, and he put together a census of about 500 fairy reports from the late 20th century through to the 21st century, um, and that came out in 2017. And a lot of these, there's a variety of descriptions in these encounter reports. Some of them sound a little bit UFO-ish, but not many. Most of them are Mm -hmm. veer towards the traditional side of fairy folklore and also a big dollop of nature spirits. Lots of people mm-hmm. think they're nature spirits, which is another subject altogether. Oh yeah, we can talk all about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but but it's, uh, but but that's and, and there's another census coming out with probably another 500 newer reports, hopefully coming out later this year. So uh, so and that's just one example of how people are still very much encountering what they interpret as fairy type entities right up to now they so so fairies haven't been replaced by extraterrestrial exactly they they are now coalescing and living together so to speak Mm -hmm. yeah i uh in a way i almost think that there's a new renaissance of fairy sightings because more and more people have felt comfortable saying well i did see a fairy once (laughs) and um you know because it used to be you had to kind of just, you know, whisper it. You couldn't just come out and say, I saw a fairy. Well, I, Unless you're like me and you you just gave up and you're just like, fine, I'm weird. I saw a fairy. Yeah, yeah, the, that's the best way to do it, Barbara. I always find, yeah, just, just accept your weirdness. <laughs> but it's um, mm-hmm. that, that, that is important. I think things have changed. I've had this discussion with several people. Maybe last um, 10 years last decade or so, something like that. Whereas before, fairies were just a completely taboo subject. Fairies mm-hmm. were either disnified or consigned to the folklore. Oh, well, you know, old, 
older generations, you know, nice, believed these that. 19th century people, they believed it, but they were just sort of rural sorts and they didn't really know what they're talking about, just making up fireside stories. And that's okay, it's all very interesting, but it's all in the past. Don't, you know, don't right. talk about that. Someone coming up, you know, say 15, 20 years ago, going onto the internet and saying, uh, I've had uh, an encounter with a fairy. You would just be laughed at. You would just be Scott. Mm-hmm. Much more so. You, you could do it with a UFO. You know, oh, oh, I've seen a UFO. Even the in, in occupants of a UFO. That would that was more always been more acceptable. Quite out there, but more acceptable. Even a cryptid, mm-hmm. even a cryptid, or a ghost. People that was more culturally accepted. You say fairies, and it's like <laughs> everybody. You're, you're not put their hands over their ears. Yeah. I'm not listening to fairies. No, 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 no. That's right. Which is. Kind of, I guess, because in the 19th century it was consigned to children's stories, and maybe you know, adults don't want to be suggested that they're childish or stupid because there is this horrible, you know, grown up look at children if they don't like children, particularly that they're just stupid because they have no experience. So when they see something they don't understand, they come up with these wild ideas. And um, yeah. I, I think that's wrong, but. But, uh, but, but, it, but it, it, I think it is changing because there are many more pe- yeah, people is. writing, you know, such as yourself, myself, um, and, you know, I could, I, could, I could name dozens of people who yeah. are writing in a serious manner about this now and asking the question well there's too much data for this and you know you can mm-hmm. you, you can uh, people the obvious argument is always well this is just a bunch of anecdotes um well uh, to that i would say that the plural of anecdote is data and i've said that so many <laughs> times and there uh, and, uh, as, as soon as you look at how many reports there have been say over the last however many years, and you find out that there are tens of thousands of them, you cannot then just say, mm-hmm. oh, no, it's just a load of rubbish, like the UFO phenomenon. It's, you can, there's too much data there. There has to be something happening. It's no good anymore. It's not, um, it's, it's not good enough to say, no, it's just a load of rubbish. It can't possibly be true because non-human intelligent entities that are non-physical can't possibly exist. Well, something's going on. So let's investigate it. And I think over the last 10 years, you know, a, a, a number of writers and, and podcasters more recently have started to approach this this subject in a little bit more of a serious way. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I, I think I've been a small part of that in that, you know, I try to just pin down very specific aspects of the fairy phenomenon working back, moving forward from the folklore into today and then into some possible interpretations and people seem to like it you know people seem to have come on board with this even some of the more hardcore folklorists who Mm -hmm. sometimes in fact sometimes they're the worst culprits for consigning (laughs) to the past yeah it's yeah. like no, if it if it if it happened after nineteen hundred, we don't need to worry. About it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again, hands over ears. No, yeah. no, 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 no. We're not listening. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that and we're going to go from the gnomes now to your essay in fairy films, uh, which is a book edited by our friend Josh Cutchin. Yeah. And 
in yours, you analyzed a film called uh, Photographing Fairies, which until recently has been hard to find in the United States. Yes. Um, it's a British film. It's a very interesting film. It sounds like it's about the Cottingley fairies, but it's not. Um, it actually uses that incident briefly. And, you know, I'm trying not to give out spoilers to people. I'm trying to get people to go watch it so I can talk with them about it. Um, I hate being the only person that's watched something or read something because then I can't, I don't have anybody to talk with about it. Yeah. But one of the things, one of the themes that you picked out of it, besides fairies being uh, connected with death or the dead, was the idea of a change of consciousness bringing on the ability to see fairies and the idea that they live in an other world that is, you know, parallel to ours and intersects with ours, but not everyone can see them until they have brought about a change of consciousness. Um, so go ahead and, and talk a little bit about altered states of consciousness and fairies. Yes, indeed. My favorite subject, actually, Barbara. And, um, I, I, you know, I presume we, we can talk about psychedelics here, can't we? We're, Certainly. We're, we are amongst friends here. Yes. So, so well, just to, to go back to, to, to the essay in Joshua Cutchin's book, uh, there are some other excellent essays in this book, and obviously it's about fairies on film in, in their various guises. Mm -hmm. So my piece was on, as you say, the 1997 film Photographing Fairies. As, again, it's like ridiculously difficult to get hold of because it never had an official DVD release. That's why it's so difficult to, to find. But um, I have a copy, and it's definitely one of my favourite films of all time. Um, I, I'm going to talk about the state of consciousness uh, in, in, in in relation to this, rather than giving everyone a resume of the film and giving loads of spo yeah, spoilers. Yeah. I don't you want don't to want do to that. tell the whole story. No, I don't. Yeah. But it's a it's a, so it's got some very famous actors in. Uh, Toby Stevens is play, plays the lead role, and Ben Kingsley is in is in it, and the lovely Emily Roof. I've, I've always had a bit of a thing for Emily Roof, so I'm glad she was. I'm glad she was in the film. And it's, as you say, it's not the Cottingley Fairies, but it's set at the same time as the Cottingley Fair. Well, actually, a few years later, because it's mm -hmm. after after the First World War, and uh, you know, a London photographer goes up to, well, it's not Cottingley. He goes up to Yorkshire somewhere, where he thinks that the fairies are residing, and he wants to photograph him. That's the, that, that's, that's the basic premise. So it's set at that lovely time after the First World War, totally different world to, to now. Mm -hmm. But he's using, the at that time, the most up-to-date photographic equipment to try and photograph the fairies. But what, as you say, one of the main themes in, in the film is you only interact with the fairies during an altered state of consciousness and the trope that you i don't think this is no this isn't a spoiler it's the, the, the trope they use during the film is that there is a small white flower which has psychotropic uh, abilities for anyone who takes it and when you take it you see the fairies 
and Toby Stevens' character finds this out from two little girls who are very like the Cottingley girls, mm-hmm. uh, Elsie and Francis, from the Cottingley story, the famous Cottingley story, but they're not quite them. You know, they're, they're, they're mm-hmm. one part removed. And the film's pretty risque in the the first time you find out that this flower has psychedelic properties, it, the girls, they're like, you know, 11 and 9, and they're taking psychedelics. Mm-hmm. It's quite risque to do, to do that oh, yeah. in, in a film. Especially uh, at that time. Yeah, yeah, quite. Uh, but they got away with it because it was so well done. Now, when they, when they take it, you only see them from a from the third person's perspective. So you're not quite sure what's going on. But the film sort of changes gear the first time the main character, Toby Stevens' character, takes the flower and there's a, there's a beautiful scene in it. It lasts for about maybe four minutes from him taking the flower, for him running to a special tree in the forest where the girls have been seeing the fairies. And... He, it's illuminated. Uh, coming back to our light, um, mm-hmm. beings of light. These these fairies are represented as beings of light. In some ways, they're, they 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 kind of look like a modern idea of a fairy because they've got wings, but they're not disnified. They're folk. Right. They're folkloric fairies with wings, and they're shining. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you can only see this and experience it once you've ch- altered your state of consciousness, in this case, using use, using the flower. And there's that be- the beautiful scene. He climbs up the trees. He's trying to interact with fairies. And then he falls from a branch. And he's immediately transported to an other world where his deceased wife is again alive. And they make love. And she turns over and says... This is not a dream. And boom, it's back in, in reality. It's beautifully done. It's, I, I could watch that the, that four minutes over and over again, and, and I frequently do. But the but then the point is, and we'll move on from, from the film to the actual concept of altering your state of consciousness and thereby being able to interact with a reality that you're not ordinarily able to interact with. So, uh, uh, well, in, in the case of photographing fairies, they use this white flower as as the means for do it, for altering mm-hmm. the state of consciousness. In in our world, it is mostly psychedelics that will change your alter, alter your state of consciousness to such an extent whereby you might be experiencing these type of what are usually non-physical entities. Now, um, obviously, there are many different types of psychedelics, and not every time you take a psychedelic are you going to encounter fairies. Um, But there are a mass of reports where people do encounter Mm -hmm. fairy-type entities on different types of psychedelics. The best... Um, database for this is a website called Eroid, eroid.org, mm-hmm. which is a very excellent site which gives masses of information on all things psychedelic. But they also have a uh, experience reports, that, mm-hmm. th- thousands of them. And one very good analysis, and you can find this on my blog site by a chap called John Hanna, 
and he went through this was a few years ago now it's 10 years ago but <coughs> he went through all of the experience reports and pulled out all of them that mentioned fairies or fairy type entities mm-hmm. and there's a very large percentage you know it's, it's like 25 percent of all, yeah. all of recorded psychedelic trips on Eroid could be interpreted as um uh, as, as some kind of uh, some kind of fairies and and and, and more recently let's come on to a, a very specific psychedelic called dimethyltryptamine DMT. Now, a lot has been written recently since Rick Straussman's book, The Spirit Molecule, in 2001, something like that. Rick Straussman carried out experiments with DMT, which is injected. And, well, the listeners who have taken DMT will know what it's like, and they will know that you cannot explain it. It's ineffable. The experience mm-hmm. is astounding and there that since Straussman wrote about it in the early 2000s there have been lots of um, articles reports research done on DMT the experience itself and everyone consistently comes out with you are transported into an other world your consciousness goes somewhere else radically different and there are always entities there mm-hmm. and when i read it i know i'm probably specially predisposed to see fairy type entities but so many of these entities that they describe and are described are fairy like to me mm-hmm. now that that altered that type that the alter state of consciousness that you will get on dmt is probably different than any other psychedelic because you are being trans, your consciousness is being transported to a total other world. You're, you, you're out, mm-hmm. you, you, your body stays in this world, your consciousness goes somewhere else. Whereas most other psychedelics, most of the time, you're still within this world. Mm-hmm. And I think, I've, I've come to the conclusion over you know, the years that I've studied this, that when you alter your state of consciousness, in, in, we're talking about psychedelics, doesn't have to be psychedelics. This is I'm just using them as an example of mm-hmm. how to radically alter your state of consciousness. And when that happens, you potentially allow in an other world, an other world that does not usually exist within our physical reality, but is always there. It, mm-hmm. it, and that altering your state of consciousness allows you to, in Aldous Huxley's um, phrase, reduce the transceiving valve which is your brain you're 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 turning it like a radio dial and you're Mm -hmm. bringing something else in from that greater consciousness that we were talking about and some of the things in that greater consciousness seem to be fairy type entities and that's that's the conclusion that well it's not an absolute conclusion but it seems the most likely scenario for trying to explain why so many people who have altered their state of consciousness see these type of entities whether it's a radical dmt experience or a more within this world experience where these beings whatever you want to call them come in and interact with us in in various ways um and 
well, this is probably a good time just to, just to come on to a, a personal story from from me. So I've uh, you know I've told you that I lost quite a lot of my eyesight in 2015, and this is relevant. This isn't a complete non segue, Barbara. I, I, it's, I believe I, I'm, you. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm still on the th- I'm still on the theme of altered state of consciousness. This is just another way that I think it happens, and so. Soon after, a couple of months after I lost this eyesight, I basically blinded my left eye and about 50% vision in my right eye. And two months after this happened, um, I was in my then home in Somerset in the southwest of England. And it was about dusk. And in March, three uh, fairies. The fairies looked like, uh, anyone know Brian Frood or Alan Lee's illustrations mm-hmm. of the fairies? They're very, I think they really plug into the sort of folkloric aspects of what the fairies are. And these three little chaps, a foot high, looked like them. They marched in, got up onto the edge of the uh, sofa, um, uh, uh, arm of the sofa, and just, just sort of mucking around for... For, for a minute and I'm sat there I'm looking at them thinking that's odd <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and and then away they went they disappeared into like a geometric pattern and off they went now this was the time when I was having quite a psychological meltdown because of my eyesight it was very traumatic and obviously the first thing I'm thinking, even though I'm, I've already identified them as fairies, I've been interested in fairies for years, I've had other fairy mm-hmm. experiences, but in this situation, the first thing I thought was, I'm going insane. This, this trauma is, 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 is really got, getting on top of me. Um, but then it happened again, the, the two, two nights following. Uh, this time there were four of them. This time they were... Um, they were messing around again. They were speaking telepathically to me. And the only thing I can remember from that encounter was one of them saying, maintain la calma, which, what, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Which, after a quick Google, I found out that's Spanish for stay calm. Don't worry stay about calm. it. Stay calm. Why they were speaking Spanish to me, I, I don't know, but um, the, 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 they did. <laughs> and this has happened regularly since that time and soon after that this happened the first time a month maybe i went to my ophthalmologist and found out about something called charles bonnet syndrome and this was this charles bonnet was a swiss naturalist in the 18th century he's the first person to notice this phenomenon of people who've lost their sight for a variety of reasons will start seeing these type of beings, not necessarily, in my case, it's fairies. Maybe I was predisposed to see fairies, exactly what we were talking on about earlier on. Other people right. will see white ladies, they'll see children, they'll see animals. And most people, it's quite a scary experience. They're, you know, you, you look on the Charles Bonnet forums and papers that are written about it, and people are kind of, oh, no, I don't like this, this is frightening me. Uh, but for me, it's always been a, a very pleasant experience. I like it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, how has it happened? Obviously, the 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 materialistic reductionist explanation is: oh, you're hallucinating. Your brain's not getting all the visual input, and so it's making some up. 
um, I call BS on that big, yeah. big time yeah. because that's that's just a reductionist way of getting out of something that they need to they should be looking into more deeply. Mm-hmm. And um, my my conclusion, my interpretation is that this is the Charles Bonnet syndrome because of the damage to my brain, which has caused the eyesight loss. It sometimes alters my state of consciousness. It tweaks that transceiving valve. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, in the same way as taking a psychedelic drug, having an epileptic fit, being, you know, even just being a bit sad or a bit happy, that just enough to alter your state mm-hmm. of consciousness and boom, in comes something from what must be, at some level, a standalone reality that only interacts with our physical reality under certain circumstances. And I believe those circumstances are primarily to do with the state of human consciousness that is observing and interacting with them. Yeah, that, that's, that's yeah. I, I, I agree with it being BS. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's too consistent to just be, oh, the brain is just making things up. Why is it making things up that are little beings or little animals or white ladies? Exactly. Or why would it do that? Creatures what, from yeah. folklore. Yeah. What? Why isn't it just geometric patterns, balls of light? Yes. Uh, geometric patterns, because, of course, lots of psychedelics show you geometric patterns. Yes. In fact, that's probably the first manifestation of it other than the tracers and the sound yes because of course it changes the way you perceive sound yeah um <laughs> and suddenly you have your filters taken away for sound it's it's like you know we all wear headphones all the time that block most of the sound and then suddenly you know you can hear the horses across the road chewing grass yes you know, yes. Oh my God! Yeah. That's what that is. You know. Yeah. This is what reality is supposed to be like. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then you know, so your hearing should be changing. Your you should be seeing the colors, the color tracers. See, I would believe that explanation if that's how it worked. Seeing little beings mucking around on your couch. I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. No, 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 definitely not. And um, uh, there is, there, there is an inter. There's a genuine interaction between us. Mm -hmm. Like I say, sometimes they'll speak to me. I I have tried to speak to them both telepathically and out loud. They never, never give me an answer because it is you can't. Or you're having this sort of well, it's a magical um, experience. And I'm, I'm, I love having these experiences, but um, there is part of me thinking, well, if you're, uh, you know, you're from another reality, can, can, can you give me some answers to some things? <laughs> they won't have it. No. There's, there's no comeback. There is no, and that's, nope. again, it's very fairy folklore. They're not playing mm-hmm. by your rules. They've got their own, exactly. they've got their own moral rules. But one thing, yeah. but one thing for sure is that I, there's no fear. It, I've never had any fear of them. It's always, it has the ambience going back to the walls and gnomes. It's all a bit fun. It's all a bit, mm-hmm. a, a bit of a lark. And, mm-hmm. and don't worry about things. Stop, stop getting stressed and anxious about things. Just you know, maintain a lapel. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I've had them talk to me without most most of the time. It's not actually words. It's sort of being smacked upside the head with what they're trying to convey all at once, and I have to sit and you know parse it out. They're not helpful yeah. in in speaking, even in in a different language to me with words necessarily. Uh, but I love that story. I, you know, that be calm because how many times have I read that from people who are, you know, in the Amazon and they went to a shaman and they're doing ayahuasca and there's always a part where you are afraid of something because it's overwhelming. Again, it takes you into another world, another existence, and there are scary things there. Um, and what do the angels say? Be not afraid. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how many times I've read that in, in psychedelic or been told that by people telling me their experiences um, in an altered state of consciousness. Uh, I thought it was really, really interesting that the children in that film were, were eating a flower. It's like... How did they figure out about that? I think, I think it's a substitute for psilocybin mushrooms. I'm sure. If I'm sure they, they wouldn't have been able to show in the film. No. A psil- oh, you're eating a, you're eating magic mushroom. So they've just taken that artistic license, license. to swap but the mushroom for the flower. Even so, kids, kids are it's beaten into kids' heads. Don't pick something in the woods and eat it. <laughs> At least it was in mine. I had, maybe my grandmother could tell that later in life I would be picking things and eating them. I don't know. But <laughs> she really, you know, she taught me, this is nightshade, don't eat it. You know, this is, this is a poison mushroom, don't eat it. <laughs> you know, over and over and over. This is foxglove, don't eat it. Um, so I wonder if the fairies told them that's never made explicit in the film. Yeah. All you give it is yeah. the film is, oh, well, there's this flower and it will alter your state of consciousness and it's an accepted trope. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I just, you know, of course, I'm sitting there going, hmm, could the fairies have told them about that? Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, that is definitely not made explicit. You don't see the, the, the girls talking about the fairies telling them. That, right. They just. Like, they just knew. Instinct. And that's probably what it was. Instinct. But uh, but uh, but so, uh, but they. You know, the main point is, it's magic mushrooms, and they've just made it into a flower, so they can get away with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's symbolic. Yeah, no it's doubt symbolic. about it. Uh, when, so when I was reading your your Wallington Gnomes uh, essay, and then it was about two months later that fairy films came out so of course i went directly to yours i skipped i've been skipping around in it and read it and i was like oh see these two things have to do these two essays are related Mm. and then i thought about your novel dead but dreaming which is a a very beautiful title (laughs) it was very evocative um it has a similar theme so this is this is three pieces of writing on this theme 
And so that, of course, is why I had to ask you about altered states of consciousness. Um, you, you mentioned Ann Jeffries, the case of Ann Jeffries. Um, would you talk a little bit about that and how her state of consciousness, we assume, was altered? Yeah, Ann Jeffries is definitely one of my favorite stories from the folklore partly because it's so well recorded. Most of the folklore mm -hmm. that you will get is from, uh, or it was recorded in the 18th and 19th century. So you have some gentlemen of leisure who <clears throat> didn't have the inconvenience of having to go to work, uh, went down and collected these folklore stories from all parts of the country. And <clears throat> Anne Jeffries was, the story of Anne Jeffries was, collected by a chap called Robert Hunt in the mid 19th century. But this was a story of Anne Jeffreys from the late 17th century in Cornwall in southwest of England, north, uh, a place called St. Teeth on the north coast of Cornwall. And Anne was 16, 17, and she went into service in the, 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 the uh, a big family home, the Pitt family home, which, you know, sort of sub-aristocrats li living on this in this incredible big mansion and she goes to be a serving girl. And the description that comes down from this story, and it's not just an anecdote that's got collected in the folklore, that's part of it, but it's recorded in letters between people, mm -hmm. civic dispositions about the case. So you have this enormous amount of historical evidence talking about this case, which was very unusual, especially for the 17th century. And what happened to Anne Jeffreys was that she was in the garden and she was whisked away by the fairies. A uh, very interesting description in Robert Hunt's piece, it, the way he writes it, the way he recorded the, the story, is that she, the way she's whisked through the air sounds very much like um, a UFO abduction. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, she goes to a complete other other world of fairyland and interacts with um the the regular sort of folkloric fa fairies for uh, a period of time before she comes back to this reality and she's found laying outside of the house and everyone's worried about her and she tells a story and gradually it gets recorded um and later in uh, from then and later in life she comes a healer that's very interesting that's another sort of very mm -hmm. uh, motif you go to fairyland you come back and suddenly you've got these healing powers so but the the very interesting thing about Anne Jeffrey's story for me is that she was probably suffering from temporal lobe epilepsy obviously we can't know that because it's the 17th century and they weren't using those terms they were using convulsive fits was the usual term, mm -hmm. which is probably equivalent to temporal lobe epilepsy and um, well, lots of people with, with temporal lobe epilepsy will tell you when you have a fit, you, sometimes you will perceive yourself going into some kind of different reality. And uh, that's, that's what happened with her. There's, there's quite a lot of the UFO abduction um, phenomenon where people with epilepsy are... You, Sorry, sorry. An explanation is used where people with ex with, with with epilepsy. That's what's causing it. That's what's causing. Mm -hmm. I think it's more. You know, again, we're coming back to 
these kind of reductionist attempts to get out of saying, well, actually, it's, you're just altering your state of consciousness and going into another world, or the other world is coming to us. And so mm-hmm. in Anne Jeffrey's case, that seems to have been what happened. So once again, um, uh, the, the she's had a, a brain altered, uh, the uh, a consciousness altered in such a way, in this case through an epileptic fit, where she can engage in what is described in quite great detail as uh, as a fairy otherworld. It's, it's a great story. And once again, the great Dr. Simon Young has put together a volume uh, about this story with all of the sources um, and and some interpretative essays from 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 myself and others so uh if you if you really want to to go to town on one of the best recorded folkloric stories which involve an altered state of consciousness go to the Anne jeffries um story and the, the best place you can start is finding simon young's volume excellent i hadn't known that he had done that yeah. so now now i know uh yeah, I really, I really like that she came back as a healer. One of the things that I've been noticing in talking with people who have seen small lights, interacted with them closely, you know, in, in fairly close proximity, uh, lots of changes happen to them. Lots of uh, ideas change, a change of thought patterns, a change of how they view the world, how they view consciousness, how they view uh, other realities or the existence of other realities. Not always for the positive, although it seems like more and more people are having positive experiences with these lights that sometimes turn into beings made of light or, you know, all kinds of other things. But I, I do wonder, you know, when, when you talk about epilepsy, temporal lobe epilepsy especially often starts with a veil of light or flashing lights in your vision, kind of like a migraine uh, aura, which, boy, those are so much fun. I, I just <laughs> love those. Uh, but she, you know, maybe then I'm like, well, is there actually a flashing of light that you see? Hmm, that could be. But what I find though is she was changed. She became a healer. She had not. She came back with knowledge. This is exactly what happens with people who are trained as medicine people, shamans, healers, traditional, you know, traditional medicine people. Essentially, they come back from the other world with information that they then share with their community. Yes. Uh, so, you know, when, when you read on Arrowwood and you, you listen to people talk about UFO abduction, you know, I'm kind of being a universalist at this point and, and looking at it from as broad a perspective as possible. Some of these people are actually acting as shamanic practitioners or ecstatic animist i don't know healers because shamanic practice is kind of a crap terminology because 
shaman is a specific term from a specific people and using it for a broad term for all the people. I mean, Marseille Eliad got it right in that, you know, what it was, what it meant. But I sometimes cringe when I use that term. I, but there's no good term for it yet, so I still use it. Um, but, it, but, even but, it but even if you're using that term, I, I, I get what you're saying about you know, yeah, terminology. Yeah. But uh, let's just say whatever shamanic culture you're talking about, these shamans were went through years of induction mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. to that point. Someone being abducted by a UFO or meeting a fairy have not gone through that induction and it's gonna blow no. it's gonna blow their mind in a way that it mm-hmm. is not for someone who is trained and knows exactly that's, what is about to happen. That's true. And that sometimes when I look at um, people who have undergone abduction over and over and over that's when I'm like, well, maybe that is a akin to the idea of shamanic initiation because, you know, in the West, we kind of, uh, you know, killed any of that off, any, any wisp of that that we had. There's little tiny fragments left. But that doesn't mean that the creatures in the other world don't want to still talk to us. Mm-hmm. And so they've kind of taken the the bull by the horns the, themselves and said, okay, fine, fine. You want to get rid of your traditions? Okay, mm, we'll just come steal you in the night and, <laughs> you know, we'll really blow your minds. And sometimes people come back with positive changes and it seems to be happening more often. Although with some UFO abductors, or abductees, I do also think there might be some uh, Stockholm Syndrome happening. I don't know. So, you know, I'm kind of agnostic on it, but I do notice the changes in people. And Anne Jeffries is one of the the earliest historical in the West person that I can point to and go, there, there, there. It's over there. Yes. There it is. Uh, Oh, is there anything else about altered states of consciousness and the other world and fairies or well, fairy-like beings or gnomes that you want to talk about? Well, we can talk about the book if you want. Go for it. <laughs> Go for it. So I, I have actually, I have actually published two novels. Um, it's, um, I should say most of my writing is non-fiction. I'm writing articles both for the blog site, for magazines, for websites. Um, that that that's kind of what I do most of the time. But I have turned my hand to fiction because with fiction you can get away with things that you can mm-hmm. when you're writing non-fiction. And I first my my first novel was published in 2016. It was written before that. And this was, remember, this is my year of meltdown. And thinking back on it, I have no idea how I managed to go through the process of actually finishing off the publication. It had all been edited and, and everything. It was all ready to go. And then my eyesight went and the months went by. Um, anyway, that, so that first novel is called Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun. Some, some of you will recognize the Pink Floyd reference. Um, and that does have some fairies in it, but it was a much... It was a much more visceral book, and it's mm-hmm. mostly about uh, 
drug use. It's mostly about psychedelic drug use, the pros and cons of psychedelic drug right. use, and you know, with an overarching kind of new world order guy feeling about it. But in 20, uh, 2020, I published the second novel, which is called Dead But Dreaming, as 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 you as you said, Barbara, and. The, the well for a start dead but dreaming it's pinched i have pinched that phrase mm-hmm. from hp lovecraft where the great Cthulhu lies dead but dreaming um yes uh, but it was so appropriate for both the blog site and for the novel so the blog site is called dead but dreaming and the novel is called dead but dreaming slightly confusing but it it's such a, it was so so appropriate for what i wanted to talk about um uh, okay, I'm not going to waste any time going into details in the book, uh, but just to give you a quick idea of what it's about, it's set in 1970, um, uh, a London folklorist, a young, like early 20s folklorist, travels down to the West Country to a psychiatric hospital or an adjunct to the psychiatric hospital to study fairy folklore in 1970. And they soon discover that quite a lot lot of other things are going on in this adjunct to the psychiatric hospital which goes into the the condition known as dissociative identity disorder used to be called multiple personality disorder and i used that to bring about the idea of many minds in one, in DID, it's obviously it's a condition where a person has lots of different personalities within them. Whether you think that's real or not, that, that's not really important. And the fact that I said it in 1970 meant that I could get away with all the controversy that happened in the 80s and the 90s about this disorder. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to worry about that. I could just... Right. <laughs> I could look at it before we'll it happened. Well, circumvent that. that. Well, you know, I'm afraid that was an easy thing to do. The other reason I said it in 1970 because I wanted to inject some prog rock music into it as well Mm -hmm. so that was that was slightly self-indulgent but is that that's what i did but uh, anyway so so the fairies are um a core component to the story for a start the folklorist is attempting to record the the folklore about the fairies in 1970 before it all dies out Mm -hmm. and 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 they do that but then again without putting any spoilers on on the book they soon discover that otherworldly, non-human, intelligent entities are—they're manifesting through one of the psychiatric patients, and then the people, the psychiatrists who are running the unit, plug into this, mm-hmm. plug into the, the 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 force of an other world in order to help cure the patients. Um, and again, I don't think it's a spoiler to. To, to, to say that, well, obviously everything goes wrong in the end. <laughs> well, yeah. What, what would you expect? It, I don't like happy endings. If it, if it went right, if it went right, it wouldn't be a story now, would it? That's, <laughs> you have to, you have to throw monkey wrenches into the, yeah. into the works Ab- of these people's lives. Absolutely. Or, you know. It gives you a lot of power as well, Barbara, when you're doing it for, you know, these characters, ha ha, what am I going to do with you now? And, and, yeah. and, and there is, you know, as the, as the book title suggests, Dead But Dream, there is quite a lot of death in, in, in the book. But um, I, I wrote it because of my intense interest in fairy folklore, the fairy phenomenon all around, but I wanted to put it 
within uh, a philosophical and psychological framework just to make mm-hmm. it a little bit more interesting and different. You know, I, ju- I didn't want to write another story about someone going off to fairy worlds and, you know, this is certainly not a fantasy novel. This is, so, so I tried to write a psychological thriller with fairies. <laughs> it's kind of like magical realism. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, sort of. I, I don't like but, I don't like that term. It's become a bit of a denuded term, that, has it? So I never but use yeah, that, but yeah, I know what you mean. It's not quite. It's not quite. Yeah. Um, I do like the the psychological thriller with fairies. That's a good, <laughs> I think that's a good terminology for it. Uh, yes, I was struck. Well, first off, I was struck because I'm working on a novel with my husband, and it's there's part of it set in a uh, old uh, psych hospital that's up on the hill in our town, uh, and there's a special unit in there. And I read that, and I went, oh. Damn it. So we had to change it around a little bit. But I was like, oh, no. Sorry about it. But it was so good I didn't care. I was like, oh, okay. And it is really actually different than ours. Okay. But uh, it did strike me very – I was like, we're going to a psychological hospital? And then there's this – Oh no! You know, but many, I many, loved it. many apologies, Barbara. I, 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 it's all right. I, I, it's all right. Huh? Great minds, great minds. Yeah. <laughs> they think alike. I really loved the main character, uh, written really well, and uh, I could feel for them through some of the the difficulties as as you know it went on. But it is beautiful in the ways that you put. Not just fairy folklore, but the the folklore surrounding death from the the UK was was wonderful because I, I, it was just subtle. You know, the, you, nothing you write in there has a sledgehammer to it. No. You know, it's it's all really deftly handled. So I I really love that book. Well, well that's very people. That, you should read it. That's very kind of you to say, Barbara. It's um yeah, it's it. It t- took a lot out of me, and I. So a psychological thriller with fairies that could have gone just over the top, couldn't it? And I'm pleased you're saying there's no sledgehammers. Everything was purposely written to be as subtle as possible, and to never go yeah. o- over the top. And also, you know, the fairies are an integral part of the story, but they don't actually turn up much. They're, no. they're in the background, no. they're liminal, they're, they just mm-hmm. appear only sometimes and only when they want, which is, I think, was basically doing justice to folkloric fairies because that's what they're like. They're not, they're not mm-hmm. around all the time. Most of, most of these no. stories are people who do something and then at some point the fairies come in and make a change in the story and that's what happens in, in, in Dead But Dreaming. But it's uh, it's uh, yeah, it took a lot out of me, and but but getting it out published and some very good reviews and good feedback is it's 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 a it's a very it's a very nice feeling. I'm very I'm very proud of it, and uh, you know, thank you for what for for what you said 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 about it. Um, and if I can ever get round to it, I might write a third novel. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but maybe one day. <laughs> And and I know you say it has a sad ending, but I want to let people know it's sad, but not completely devastatingly sad. Yeah. It's also happy. Well, I mean, in my view of happy, and you know, 
Well, we, we d- I have kind of a, you know, <laughs> depressing view of happy. Is it, yeah, well, exa- exactly the same here, Barbara. And, uh, you know, this, this is not a spoiler. Again, this isn't a spoiler. It, it ends with death, but it also ends with life. So the, so the epilogue is um, terminus et exordium, which is Latin for end and beginning. Yeah, yeah. And that is a good place to end. (laughs) You'd think we'd rehearse that. that. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? Um, Thank you so much for for consenting to come and talk with me. I've been wanting to talk with you for a while, but life kept getting in the way. And that's okay because that meant that the Fairy Films book came out while I was still, you know, waiting. So thank you. Thank you very much, Barbara. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure, and and I know we often say these say this on these type of podcasts, but we've only scratched the surface because there's a I lot know. more. You know, we we could talk for hours, but people don't don't listen to six hour podcasts, do they? So I, no. I think uh, an hour and a half, and if ever we can get to talk again, and if you'd like to come on the podcast that I do with Kate Ray called Hair and the Hawthorn. You'd be more than welcome to come on. Excellent. Um, I'd love to. But, um, so, uh, uh, so, so, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome to come back anytime that you're able. I, I'd, I'd love it. Uh, we could, we could even maybe rope Josh into it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah that'd be good. Have a, okay. I almost said a three way, and that would have been bad, and it would have been awkward <laughs> Ooh, and madam. silly. But, but we could have a three way conversation. Um, thank you again. Thank you, Barbara. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. (laughs) 